Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of JMU Sound Off. I am Jonathan McNamara coming to you, as always, from Richmond, Virginia. A huge week in JMU athletics landscape. Uh, a new coaching search underway currently in the halls of Godwin or APC or somewhere on campus. We'll get into that as we go throughout the episode. Uh, the JMU Dukes also found out who they will be playing in their first ever bowl game heading to the state of Texas to take on Air Force. We'll get into that. And then we're going to look back at the 2004 National Championship team with some of the big players from that era, D.D. Boxley, as well as Cortez Thompson. Then we'll have a very special guest as we get throughout the episode. So stay tuned for that. You're not going to want to miss our mystery guest tonight. And with that, we're about to get to the other guys on our team. But as always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsors, Skyline Financial Partners, as well as the Montpelier Collective. For information about Skyline Financial, Skyline Financial Partners com the montpelier collective uh helps sports student athletes at james madison university by making your gift today at montpeliercollective.com and with that we'll bring in steve brown michael evangelista and taylor atkins guys uh lots to discuss tonight um a lot of people asking us some questions as we've gone throughout the day if we have any insight into the coaching search uh i'm just going to say right now we're all waiting on Kind of the same news as everybody else. Uh, probably refreshing our Twitter feeds a little more than you typically would on a daily basis, looking to see if uh, Greg Medea or any of the beat reporters in Harrisonburg are going to break some news. Um, but no inside information here. So we'll wait. If there is any news as we go throughout the broadcast, we'll bring it to you. Uh, we did do a special episode um, earlier this week where we kind of went through some of the names that have been surfacing around the coaching um, search throughout the <clears throat> nation because there's a national search going on from JMU's perspective. Um, and some of the candidates mentioned for the JMU job also being mentioned in the openings for some of the other jobs out there. So stay tuned. Um, but guys, I did want to ask right off the top before we get into the news about the bowl. Um, and I'll start with Steve. Um, just kind of where you think we stand. Uh, as JMU looks to find a new coach, uh, a lot of time kind of now starting to come into play with the opening of the portal tomorrow. Uh, we did get some news from Greg Medea, um, sourced out some candidates today. Uh, but just your thoughts on where we currently stand in this search and, and when you think we might get a resolution. I have no idea. That's what I figured <laughs> I you'd say, I and I knew this would be a quick discussion. So <laughs> um, I wish I wish I could tell you I knew, um, but I I have faith. I'm going to have faith even though I'm getting aggravated. Um, I'm only getting aggravated internally because I just don't know. So I'm sure the folks that are doing this know the timeline, know kind of what needs to happen based on how they rolled out some other things today with Robo, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, I would have hoped we'd have heard something today. Um, but there's there's a reason for it, I'm sure, and there's a timing reason for it, I, I hope. So I'm going to leave it at that. Awesome. Taylor, I did want to bring you in because you didn't get to join our uh, our special episode that we did on on the news of Kurt Signetti leaving for Indiana and the news about the coaching search. So anything you'd like to to add to the discussion just about, uh, obviously, the news of Signetti leaving, um, but also kind of where we stand as this university makes probably one of the more important hires in our history uh, as we're now past the transition, uh, looking into the future of this program, where we go now, uh, not only in the group of five landscape, but in the landscape of the Sun Belt and our competition to try to be one of the teams uh, that's eligible for next year's group of five position in the, the college football playoff when it expands to 12 teams. The only two things I would probably add that I, I would have said Friday is um, I've been talking to a couple people and really when you're talking about not only this year, but the next couple of years, this is probably one of the top 10 jobs that's going to come open. Now, I'm not saying that JMU is one of the top 10 programs, top to bottom overall in the country. What I'm trying to say is 
between this year and the next couple of years, the jobs that are going to come open, there's going to be very few that have the foundation that JMU has. We've talked about this before, the 21, win 21 seasons without a losing season. Uh, we're one of only three in that category. Uh, we've had unprecedented success at every step of our history, really, over that two-decade period. And, you know, a lot of people have made some good points. You know, uh, Coach Kurt Signetti, without him, much of the last two years wouldn't have happened. However, he was a piece of this program, and the foundation of everything that is this program is still here. So um, while I know the, the anxiety and the anxiousness of not knowing who and not knowing when, and we are in a new era than we've been in, in past uh, hiring searches, there's transfer portals, there's NIL, we're at FBS. So there's a lot of um, anxiousness, and I, I can understand a lot of uncertainty. And it's just not a great feeling when you've been on such a high for so long. You guys mentioned on Friday, I think it was Steve, that you know here we are talking about this two weeks ago. We're on national television, Pat McAfee, Michael's up there. So um, all that to be said, I um, was involved with the, one of the coaching searches at UTSA. It might be anecdotal, um, but I feel like during that search then, and even the second coaching search we had at UTSA, there's a lot more bad information, misinformation, just flat out false information than there is real information. Um, my experience with the first coaching search that we had um, to this day, actually, I don't know if anyone knows who the final three candidates were. And I do know that as candidates came out that were being considered by UTSA, um, when they came out, it was true. But by the time they were coming out, a lot of times it was uh, people who were no longer being considered. Um, so all I'm trying to say is I know there's a lot of well-intentioned people out there. I know everyone loves the Dukes and everyone's, you know, heard a rumor here and has a good source there. Uh, hang tight because just really kind of think back to the stuff I was saying earlier of how good of a job this is, how strong the foundation is. And, um, you know, we're probably 48, 72 hours, maybe 24 hours away from knowing something. As Steve mentioned, we don't know, but I'm just saying there's a reason that everyone feels this way, but we'll be good. We'll be good. Michael, your thoughts. Yeah. Same place. Like we don't know what's going on, but on a personal level, but also from a common sense level, the portal opens tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, there has to be considerable urgency, both leverage on JMU and the potential coaches agents, right? They're probably trying to get as much as they can knowing that's the, the deadline. The school is also pushing to get as much as they can on their side, um, given that's the deadline. And I will say this. I tweeted, I think, on Friday or Saturday. I don't even know. It's been crazy the last 72 hours, by the way. The, the fact that there might be potential snags with buyouts and all of that good stuff probably indicates that we're investing a significant amount of money on this hire. And I, I trust Jeff Bourne, the university, that we're making the right investment the correct investment and we're willing to make the financial commitment to do this so like i said i don't know i have no information just like everybody else but it's a good sign from the university considering where we are um but there's a lot of anxiety right now you know you're seeing social media just totally change the game in terms of information being spread around what i do want to say is if you're a recruit someone in the portal a player there's a lot of misinformation on twitter on facebook and wherever you get information from we're all emotional. I'm emotional. I just don't want us to be basing any decisions on what we see from some random account. 
right? Or some random personnel that just does not, you know, probably have any connections and probably in the dark, just like any of us. So a lot of uncertainty right now, but confidence will make the right decision. And, and my last point on that, I think it's really great you bring it up, Michael, is to, to not trust necessarily what you see on uh, Twitter. We've seen a number of examples of some accounts that maybe 48 hours ago were a Virginia Tech fan blog or a, uh, a, a page dedicated to another team that suddenly changed their profile picture to a JMU-related thing or a journalistic outlet and they're claiming, you know, certain former Virginia Tech coaches are in the mix. They're 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 kind of putting anything out there with the goal and intention, clearly, not only to fire up JMU uh, fans, but to also maybe start some chaos online. And so, when in doubt, critically read some of the rumors that are out there. We've seen AI generated articles that said Everett Withers is a candidate for this job. I, I, I fairly certain he's not. Um, guess guess anything's possible in this era of sports, but pro probably not a top tier candidate for this position. Um, so again. Take a deep breath. Everything will be okay. We'll have a name soon. Uh, but stay tuned to our accounts and, and also the official accounts. Uh, you know, plug to Katie Harper, who's doing great work, Greg Mendia, David Teal, um, obviously the uh, Pete Thamels and the Chris Vaninis of the world all over this as well. And, and I have a feeling we will hear in short order who the new head coach is, and they're going to have a big job ahead of them uh, as they look into the portal to try to re-recruit some of the guys that are currently on this roster, uh, securing the recruits that have uh, made commitments to JMU and then looking to bring in their own people uh, to help to uh, you know bolster this roster as we move into the future. Some news made tonight, though, uh, that JMU did name an interim head coach uh, going into the uh, bowl game against Air Force. Um, that has been a conversation starter. I know that has been in a lot of our text threads and also online uh, of that awkward dynamic of of Kurt Signetti coaching both at Indiana and trying to coach the bowl. Um, Signetti, in his remarks this week, said he would only be ninety percent. Focus on Indiana, 10% focus on JMU and, and might only show up for two days. So now uh, we can push that off into the future and maybe finally have that separation we desire. Um, but your thoughts on on Robo, Steve? Uh, I know you've had a chance to know him very well. He's somebody that's very respected amongst the players. Um, really a, a key figure in helping our offensive line to be so successful over the past couple of years. Um, your thoughts on him and, he, and his remarks tonight about possibly bringing in some other people to help um, fill in some of the positions that were lost as a part of uh, most of the staff now making their transition over to Indiana. Yeah, I'm really excited that that Robo is gonna gonna lead this transition. And um, one of the guys, I mean, all those guys are good. So don't, I don't want anybody that's listening to this think that I'm saying anything out of school, but, but Robo is one of my favorites. Um, one is he's an offensive line guy. Um, and that's the group I watch. I watch him more extensively when I'm on the sidelines to see what he's writing down. I can't see it. Um, but I'm watching him, watching how he interacts with those guys that that locker room loves him. If you watch the tweets that were coming out, um, the players were extremely excited, um, that he's going to be the guy. Um, taking them into the bowl game. Um, if you watched his Twitter account yesterday, you got a good um, you got a good deal of of knowledge. I think I sent you guys a text saying, "Hey, Robo's texting." Um, I don't usually see him text much, and he's texting all kinds of stuff on Saturday afternoon. So I had an inkling that he was going to be the guy, but didn't know. And so um, love seeing all the players talking about it as soon as the bowl hit, and they they heard about Robo. Um, the excitement level was skyrocketed. So it it gave me, um, you know, got a little depressed over the last couple of days, which is hard for me. I don't usually get depressed, but I do. Um, you see some guys going to the portal. I know it's not the end of the world. It doesn't mean they're leaving. Um, but love to see the other guys saying, hey, can't wait to play. Can't wait to play for Robo. Um, it, it's, a, it's an exciting, ex exciting for the program. And I think the guys are really happy. 
Well, and the other news that came out of that press conference is that all of the players that are have entered the portal, at least currently, plan to play in the bowl game. So I know that has been some of the discussion on sites like Jamie Nation and, and Twitter and elsewhere. Is what is this roster going to look like? At least as of now, the plan is for it to be a fully intact roster of all the players we've come to love this season. Uh, and you never know well, what a good performance at a bowl game, um, a good experience with the fan base can could mean for those players. Uh, maybe reigniting their their feelings for possibly staying at JMU, uh, especially once by that time we'll have a new coach hopefully named. Um, so you never know what could come from it. But I want to ask you, Taylor, you're, you're somebody who had transitioned over to UTSA, have gone through the bowl um, experience. Um, you were somebody that's been a part of the selection show process, somebody who's you know waited to, to find out where you're going to play. Um, maybe transitioning now to looking forward to this bowl matchup against Air Force. Um, your thoughts on the news today, James? You gets a, a program as an opponent that we're all familiar with, a service academy in the Armed Forces Bowl um, outside of Dallas, uh, playing at Texas Christian University Stadium on uh, 3.30 on ABC. Uh, kind of amazing when you look back a few years ago, we were playing in FCS that in our second year in transition, we're getting to play in a major bowl uh, against a great opponent. Um, your thoughts on the matchup and and what this is going to be like for these players as they go through this process? You know, a lot of people, obviously, uh, over the last few weeks, there's been this roller coaster of emotion and, you know, what what could happen with the waiver and what could happen with the championship, what could happen with the bowl. Um, to put in perspective, I mean, th this is a great bowl. It's one of the highest, if not, the highest uh, payout among the G5 outside of the NY6. Um, we're playing this Air Force team, which, you know, think back just a few weeks ago. This Air Force, it wasn't Tulane everyone was talking about. It, it was Air Force. Air Force was the top G5 team. Air Force was the team to beat. Air Force was who needed to be knocked off. And uh, so we're going up against a quality opponent that was really the one of the top names in G5 for the first half of the season. Um, TCU Stadium is beautiful. It's a great area. It's easy to get to. I know the four of us have been in multiple text threads. Um, flights are pricey. Hotels are, are tough. I mean, this is the only thing that I would say is not great about this bowl game is that it is just really flying. It's going to really be the only way to get there. Um, and the four of us, uh, you know, the four of us are still confirming what we're going to do and everything. I, I will say uh, whether whether there or, or back here um, will have some sort of sound off presence for the game. Um, and we'll probably work on those details this week and bring that to you next week when we have our show. Um, but this is, you know, this this bowl game checks a lot of boxes. There are a lot of teams that would love to be in this position. It's a great time slot. I mean, the, the 23rd, people are going to be on vacation probably, but it's not right up against Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on this. This really is an opportunity to show the, the, the country more about JMU, a team that most people still are getting to know. Um, obviously, you know, it won't be, you know, maybe some people will say it's not going to be the same JMU team from this season, but the players are going to play. The coaches have the schemes out there. I'm really excited about the announcement of the interim coach today that we had. Um, this is going to be a fun time. And I'll say this, and this is not to downplay, uh, the, any of the Frisco experiences, but I think I mentioned this last show, uh, in 2016 was UTSA's first bowl. It was a six and six UTSA team. It was a six and six New Mexico team. It was at New Mexico's home stadium in the New Mexico bowl for the first bowl game of the season. So for all intents and purposes, this was one of the smaller, less exciting bowls of bowl season. The fanfare in the environment over the couple of days that led up to it, and especially the day before, 
was bigger than anything I ever experienced in Frisco in terms of fanfare, events, and just the whole environment around the game. So I, I encourage everyone, go to the game if you can. We understand the, the circumstances. That's not for everybody. Go to the game if you can. Also, buy your tickets through JMU. That's one of the biggest messages to stress. Please buy your tickets through JMU. You're going to have great seats. It helps JMU. There's a certain allotment of tickets they're going to be responsible for. This is what helps JMU. It also is what helps JMU make its presence known so that this time next year as bowls are sorting out, who do they want to invite? They want to say that the JMU Nation turned up, the JMU Nation supported. So um, I'm excited about the game. Obviously, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda a few weeks ago. We're past that. This is a great opportunity. Let's go Dukes. Michael, uh, curious your thoughts on the matchup. This is an, an Air Force team that has given some teams some fits this year uh, with the style of offense they run. What do you see uh, when you see JMU looking on the other side of the field against this Air Force offense and the option attack that they run? Yeah, I think Taylor nailed it on the head, right? This was the G5 team in the first half of the season. So it shows how quickly the narrative changes. So they, they wrapped up the regular season 84. They're coming off uh, a four-game losing streak. Uh, from all and from all I've hear, they've they've been decimated with injuries, right? Offensive line, defensive line, linebacker, secondary, you name it. Um, but at the end of the day, right, they still finish eight and four, still serve as academy. They're going to be pumped up at, at this game, and I guarantee we will too. So regardless who's coaching on the field, we're still James Madison University. A lot of those players have a chip on their shoulder, whether they got over recruit or over recruited, under recruited, however you want to interpret it. Um, they've got a lot to prove on the field and a lot to prove for this institution. Um, in terms of the matchup, it worries me. Um, Air Force runs that single wing, triple option of all different shapes and sizes, flex bone, single wing, however you want to call it. That's very difficult to prepare for. They're one of, I think, three organizations that run that offense. And I know I'm going to bring up a program that we don't really like, but you know, Coastal even mentioned when they prepared, I believe, for Army two weeks ago, they had to handle that option. And the problem with that is when you have practice squad players, freshmen, trying to impersonate that scheme, you can't run it with the level of execution or speed as obviously the opponent would. And when I think of all of the cards against us right now in terms of coaching staff, personally, you name it, just makes it particularly diff diff difficult. But at the end of the day, you're, you're putting a dog in the corner, right? It's us against the world. I think there's going to be people and players particularly motivated for this game. It's going to be a huge challenge. But I think Taylor and Steve said it, Robo's the right guy for the job. There's a lot of players that are going to run through a brick wall for him. He's well-respected. Um, Robo won a national championship with Casey Keeler, I believe, in 2003 or four when Flacco was there. He was their O-line coach. And I got to listen to his interview briefly right before this. I didn't listen to the whole thing. But he said over the last you know, four years or so, five years that he's been here, he goes, James Madison University attracts success. So let that sit in. Again, this university attracts success. We win and we require excellence. I thought that was very profound and shows you sort of like how he feels and how the players feel around him. So I'm really excited about it. Cautiously optimistic about the, the matchup. It's got a lot of work, but it's going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to get paid $1.4 out of it. Whether that gets divvied out against all the, the different programs in the conference, I'm not really sure, but I think Taylor's right. It is the highest-paid bowl outside the NY6. Well, and again, just to add one more thing to that, it's ABC. After the exposure we had on College Game Day, 
after the exposure we had in the multiple broadcasts across the linear networks of ESPN and ESPN Plus, a major explanation point on a season of unprecedented exposure for this program. That's the type of thing that gets new recruits to look at JMU, the type of thing that gets transfer portal guys to get look at JMU, and the type of things that attract coaching candidates to say, this is a program where you can get your name out there, a program where you can become a household name very quickly. And let's be honest, a program from an exposure perspective that is a stepping stone. We don't want to hear about it. A lot of times it's tough for us as fans to deal with, but to those bigger jobs, that's the type of thing that attracts up and coming candidates. Uh, and I'm something I'm sure JMU is uh, highlighting as a part of their interview process to these potential candidates who may have other opportunities uh, for why this is such a special and unique place to come coach. Uh, and we'll st all stay tuned for see what impact, but an exciting time for the bowl. Um, as Taylor mentioned, jamusports.com has information about tickets. Um, there's conversations happening on, on many platforms about potential charter flights happening. Um, so just stay tuned. You know, talk to fellow Dukes, find out what their plans are. If you're not somebody who can make the trip um, out to Texas, find a way to watch this game with uh, fellow Dukes. I'm sure there'll be some great uh, viewing parties done by the Alumni Association. I know Trip uses um, watching tonight's broadcast. Uh, if there is information as it comes throughout uh, the next couple of days and couple of weeks, We'll make sure to post it on our Sound Off social accounts, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of information coming from the university as well. Um, before we get to the guys, any other thoughts, guys? Uh, anybody else have anything yeah. before we bring in our guests tonight? Hey, let me throw one more thing in there. For, yeah. for the people that are afraid of the triple option, the best guy to have is Robo. Robo's got two and a half, almost three weeks, and as an offensive line coach, he knows exactly how that scheme works. So you will see it, it's hard usually in a week to get ready for that, Coastal got dogged by it at Army because they watched the tape and Army ran a completely different uh, single-wing setback. So they they ran something different on Coastal. Um, Robo will have the guys ready. Uh, Air Force hasn't seen the, the type of dogs we have that play and as fast as we are. Um, you won't see us get eaten up by that. Um, it's going to be a great contest. Don't get me wrong. That Air Force team is good, um, really good. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how we scheme it. Um, he's the guy for it. So it doesn't scare me, but th that's a good team. So just because they've lost four in a row, um, don't discount them as a, as a great team. That'll be one of the better games that weekend will be that game. So real quick, before we transition to our guests, I, I know, Michael, um, one thing we talked about, we forgot to mention early in the episode, the, the one piece that came out from the article from Greg Medea, and if you haven't seen Greg Medea's article today, uh, where he mentions potential candidates. There were some names that stood out from the past. One was uh, somebody who's currently at Rutgers, former main coach Joe Harasimiak, uh, and Holy Cross is Bob Chesney. Uh, Michael, do you have any thoughts on those two potential candidates and their connection to uh, a former coach at JMU who was mentioned in an article in, in Trip Weaver possibly coming back uh, as a part of the new staff here in Harrisonburg? Yeah, really excited. Uh, Bob Chesney, sort of the, the Kurt Signetti mode in the sense of, He's been a head coach at multiple organizations with limited resources and found a way to win. Bob Chesney, if I'm looking at this correctly, you know, he is 111 and 46 as a head coach across Division II, FCS. I think he's been a head coach since 2010. So he's got a 70% winning record. So what that tells me is someone that's got a template of success, can execute, and is a great leader among men. So I'm really excited about that. Joe Harrisimiak, you know, we remember those main teams from 2016 to 2018 that just found ways to win. Um, whether it was ugly, whether it was on trick plays, end arounds, they just figure it out every step of the way. And in, ter in terms of like bringing some folks back, right? Like I think we talked a little bit about Friday, Corey Heatherman, um, very close for Joe with Joey Harrisimiak from, from all intents and purposes, left JMU 
after winning the assistant coach of the year in 2019 or it was 2021 to follow um, Harrison Mayak to Rutgers to be the linebacker coach. Could he come back as a defensive coordinator again? This time for a G5 program, we'll see. And Trip Weaver, that, that's a name from the Mike Houston days. Um, young line, young uh, safeties coach right now for ECU was actually Mike Houston's, I think, high school quarterback when he coached in high school, if I remember correctly. Um, could he come back as all, at all? We don't know. But they mentioned Greg Media and I think the Daily Progress. He's got some connections with, with the alleged candidates. So not sure. Like I said, we, we don't know anything. We're really excited to have some you know, former Dukes back in the fold. Hey, Michael, any thoughts on the uh, Southern Utah coach that's also been publicly confirmed to be in the mix? I'm curious if you, I know you've spent some time out in Utah. Any thoughts on him? Yeah, so I believe his name is Delane Fitzgerald. Um, was, I think he played for JMU, was also on Mickey Matthews' staff in the early 2000s. Um, was very, County, correct too. Yeah, Nelson County, yeah, right down the road. Um, local Virginia native. Um, I followed him quite a bit because I think he he built a winner at Frostburg State, which I think is either D two or D three. But he's out in Southern Utah University. Um, I think they're the Thunderbirds, um, right outside of Zion National Park, if I remember now. Uh, you know, smaller school there in the Big Sky. I'll be honest, kind of makes Weber State look like Alabama at times. So I got a chance to visit on campus. So. A little bit of a smaller uh, footprint, smaller resources. However, he's built winners, right? So I think, and we've seen before, whether it's this coaching cycle or the next, JMU has a tendency to keep tabs on up-and-coming co- coaches. We know that Kurt Zignetti actually interviewed in 2015, right? Was he the right guy for the job? No. J- Joey Harris Simiak interviewed in 2018 with Kurt Zignetti got the job. Maybe this is his time around. So it's good to that we have a little bit of a bench and someone that's motivated to come back into the Valley as well. Yeah, and I'll say if you have a chance, go look at all three of these coaches that were mentioned on YouTube. You'll see some of their videos. All of them, highly energetic coaches, um, seem to be very uh, focused on on their interactions with players in terms of they they come across as players coaches in a big way, um, but also very active and seemingly people. I, Joe Harrisimiak, I, I saw something he he posted from his time at Maine, um, where he went through and did a, a how to video for traditions for fans at that at Maine Stadium. Just shows he was willing to get hands on, willing to to put his own voice to things, and and showed how much he valued the fans. We talked about in our special episode the importance of having a coach in this era for JMU who can help with the fundraising and fan engagement. It seems like all three of these guys are going to be somebody that are going to easily um, help in that arena. Uh, very media savvy, especially compared to Kurt Signetti. That was not his strength, at least early in his tenure. Um, so lots to be excited about, and we say that because. If, if one of the things that's been negative in all the speculation online is just a lot of focus on the big names um, that are out there, that maybe the P5 retreads or, or guys who come from big programs. Remember, in the Kurt Signetti hiring process, there were a lot of big name coaches mentioned in, in the rumor mill that never even actually interviewed for the job. Um, and it worked out well. And the same in the Mike Houston hire, there were a lot of names that, that were coming down from P5s. Remember, agents play a major role um, in how these stories get sourced. Uh, getting their guys mentioned uh, not only for this job, but for other potential jobs. So stay tuned. We'll hear something soon. Uh, But with that, we did want to transition to the next part of tonight's episode, which we're really excited about for the fans who lived through the 2004 era. Um, 
Taylor, Steve, and I um, were very, very much uh, engaged in our fandom for JMU at that time. Michael's a little bit younger, so he'll 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 come into this episode at some point with, with his thoughts as well. But um, there were some players from that 2004 national championship team who had some moments that season that um, are milestone moments in this program's history that really were the kind of lighter fluid that launched that program to where we are today. And we thought it was important with all of the discussion about this season uh, and where we are from a historic perspective to bring on two of those players who had moments that season that we'll never forget. Um, Dee Boxley, former wide receiver, and Cortez Thompson. Gentlemen, thank you for joining tonight's episode. Uh, we were talking in our pre-show uh, about some of our favorite moments from your tenures. Um, I'm going to start with you, Didi, because uh, we we shared a math class together, as I mentioned. Uh, you, you did much better in that math class than I did, so shout out to you. I, I don't know if you're still using any of the skills you learned in nature of mathematics um, in Burris Hall, but but Didi, um, part also why we want to have you on is, is as we mentioned, it was that your team and that program success from 04, building on the uh, foundation that was created from generations of Dukes players that came before you that was really a um, catalyst for the growth that we have seen in JMU football um, in the nearly 20 years since that 04 run. Um, looking back on that time, I'm just curious if, if you at any point as a player um, ever imagined we would be where we are today, um, either in the lead up to the two 4004 championship game or, or your time afterwards to think we would have three college game day appearances since then. Um, the 2016 national run, the Pat McAfee show, everything that's come with it, uh, in, as well as a, a much larger stadium than you had the opportunity to play in. Um, just love your thoughts on 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 where this program is now, um, coming from your perspective uh, from 2004's run. Oh man, uh, the program has definitely evolved uh, further than I would say any of us could have imagined. Uh, in, in such a short time. Um, I know immediately after we uh, won the national title, um, there were a lot of talks of us going D1. Um, but that was that was about it. Like just, you know, closing the stadium, moving up to play better competition. Um, but I didn't I didn't see this where we where we are now. It's amazing. And this Man, I, I can't even put it into words. Like when I go back, like I'm I'm just so amazed uh, of how far we come, and I'm just so proud to be a Duke. John, did I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Didi, um, I'm we're reading some of the notes here. That as as this is a live podcast, folks. There's all bloopers all the time. Um, Didi, you were um two of the plays that you had during the football season. Um, we've talked before the we got on the show here today. Uh, there was the main game where you caught the game winning touchdown in the back of the end zone. I think with under a minute left, if I'm correct, and this is in the two, yeah. four, 2004 season. And then there's the iconic uh, fingertip catch at William and Mary in the sign in the semifinals. I, I believe there's a, in someone's office that works at JMU, and I'm trying to think of who it was, there was a progression of that shot and that ball. I mean, your arms are, couldn't have been stretched out any further than they were, but it's such an iconic photo from that season. Um, just talk about when you, when you think back to some of those iconic images or those iconic plays, um, 
just, I mean, did, I guess my question would be, did you realize how special they were in the moment or has it continued to become more and more meaningful as the years have gone on? Uh, definitely continued to become more and more meaningful. Um, I can remember uh, the William and Mary catch. Um, you know, first of all, I didn't even think I was going to get to that ball. <laughs> and uh, and that play wasn't wasn't designed for me. Uh, I was actually on the back side of the play. Um, I just rem remember in the huddle, uh, as we were breaking the huddle, Justin kind of grabs me and was like, run your route. I'm coming to you, you know, letting me know, like, don't don't be playing around back there, like running. Uh, and and, and he, he threw it to me and I thought I thought it was overthrown. And I don't know. I think I had an angel with me or something to help me get to that ball. Um, and after making the catch and coming to the sideline, you know, uh, ESPN was there and they're all in my face like, oh, you know what you just did? And I'm like, I made a catch. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's just a it's just another play for me. Uh, I didn't realize, you know. At, in the moment, how big it, it would become or how big it was then. Well, and speaking of big plays, Cortez, I want to bring you into this conversation. Um, you know, the original idea that we had specifically to bring you and Didi on are because of just how iconic some of the plays that you guys had in that football season. Um, and obviously, arguably one of the most famous plays in Jamie football history is the punt return that you had against Delaware, who was the reigning national champion at the time. And um, we had a fan, we, we had, we've had a couple of guests recently comment on our podcast that they defined JMU in two eras before no flags and after no flags. And that iconic moment where, where you, you caught the punt return, you're running down the sideline, um, and you'll have to remind me, I believe. It was Roddy McCarter who was in front of you, knocking over guy after guy after guy, or might have been. I can't. I can't remember. But um, talk about that play. Talk about that game, and then talk about the moments after that game. JMU, who had never been in the national conversation really in terms of that point, had just knocked off the reigning national champion. What is going through your mind as a player in the moment and after the game? Uh, just to correct you on the first thing, it was a. Uh... It was actually Clint Kent. Uh, he was he was there on the sideline, just kind of okay. <laughs> kind of guiding me down the sideline, knocking people out the way for me. So I definitely want to give a big shout out to Clint because he definitely paved the way. Um, the punt return thing was just a it's just an opportunity for one person to you know catch the ball and hopefully try to run it back. But you know, with our team and the way that we had our team set up for that year, everybody just kind of chipped in, did their part. Um, it wasn't it wasn't about anybody's personal accolades or anything like that. Um, you know. A lot of our punt returns will always go to our sideline. Um, so that was a punt return that we went to our sideline that we actually, um, that we actually like um, perfected. Um, you know, just going through that play from the time I caught the ball, is just one of those things that you just never really think is going to happen. You know, it's like a dream come true. You just catch the ball and you just run. Um, don't really think I got touched at all. Um, <laughs> kind of just one of those things you just run, you know. So from that play, it was a it was a very close game. As you mentioned, Delaware was the reigning champions, um, national champions from the, from the year before. So definitely, them coming to our home to our home field is something we always took pride in. We never wanted to lose at home. Um, having a home field advantage in front of your crowd, um, everybody supporting you, everybody's cheering, everybody's yelling. You never want to let those fans down. Um, so just from that play, it was just a big play. You know, to this day, I'll see somebody random and. They'll talk about the punt return or they'll try to show me on YouTube. And, you know, it's just kind of, you know, tremendous and, you know, just kind of a 
kind of rewarding um, situation to be in as far as just people just being able to um, to relive those moments. It's been almost 20 years ago since that moment. Um, Jamie, you never won a national championship, um, championship. So that was really like one of the you know biggest plays that we've had, you know, that year. But it wasn't I wouldn't define it as the biggest play just because we've had so many plays that year that 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 actually took over um, mm -hmm. that actually took over certain games throughout the game that um, that uh, just kind of changed our season. You know, we, we could go back and forth game by game, you know, player by player on offense, defense, special teams that make big plays. And um, everybody really just kind of came together and just with that collective effort, I think that's the reason why we won the championship. Why we won the championship that year. Well, I, I forgot how crappy that field was until we just showed that. <laughs> I, I, I played softball in that field when you guys weren't playing football, and you, you're just playing on on asphalt basically with uh, some green stuff on it. Um, we were in the stands, so my daughter was 12; she's 32 now, and my son was eight, and. That's the loudest before we had the national champ before we had App State come to town in 2008. That place was rocking. Um, it was rocking like it was uh, with the App State game a couple of weeks ago. But that's the first time I got the feel that something special just happened. Um, not, not that I mean the whole season was good, but when that happened, you could you just know moments like that. And to Taylor's credit. That's when it kind of clicked, and I don't know if it clicked with both of you. Did, did it hit the same way for you guys on the on the field that it hit for us in the stands? I mean, for me, it was just kind of the whole season. Um, definitely, that was a big play. Like I said, I mean, we could go game for game and highlight different plays of, you know, running backs, Maurice Finner, Alvin Banks, uh, Justin Riscotti throws to different receivers. We had a plethora of receivers that he could get the ball to to make plays. You know, defensively, our defensive front showed up every every single week. You know, our linebackers, Trey Townsend, Quinn Walton. You know, we could go down the line. Our defensive backs, Clint Kent, myself, um, uh, Tony Lazat. You know, just we, yeah. we could go down the line just to highlight every single player on our team. You know, our coaching staff, you know, Mickey kind of made us men as we were still kind of developed from boys, um, which kind of really put everybody in a position to be successful. Um, like I said earlier, you know, we all just kind of put our personal – differences to the side. We came together as a team. You know, I got there. We went two and nine my freshman year, you know, five and seven, six and six, and then 13 and two to win a national championship. So it just to be a part of that transformation is kind of just monumental. Um, being a part of all that from the lows to the highs, doing something that the, that the program has never done before as far as winning the national championship um, just speaks volume on everybody that was a part of it. Um, definitely was a big play. You know, I, I, I can't I can't take all the credit. I will take some credit. Um, but definitely, uh, that, that, that play right there just fuels everybody to just want to continue to get better each and every day and just continue to win. So I've got an interesting perspective. So I got to JMU in 2008. Um, so the Cortez Thompson stories, the DD boxing stories were like stories of legends when I got there. Um, and so I was on the, the back end, right, where we saw sort of the rise of JMU. They built the stadium in 2011, finally graduated in 2012. Um, so I saw also two sides of Mickey Matthews, right? Like he was the king of the hill, brought the national championship, eventually, you know, left in 2013. I'd love to kind of hear, like, what are some of your favorite stories, maybe like funny tales from Mickey or Mickey-isms? Like we've heard him talk about how when he got to JMU, you could throw a grenade in the stands and no one would, get, would have gotten hurt to now having 26,000 people there. Um, tell us a little bit about some of your favorite Mickey stories. 
Oh man. We'll keep it PG too if you want. <laughs> Let me try. I don't think there's enough PG stories to tell. Yeah. <laughs> we are an, we are an internet broadcast, so feel free to say anything is okay on this broadcast. I let Cortez take take that. <laughs> um, I mean Mickey was a very interesting guy. Like I said before, man, he was he was he was somebody that made a lot of boys turn into men really really quickly. I mean, he taught us about football. He taught us about life. Um, he had a lot of different stories, a lot of different getting your face moments. He's grabbing guys by the face mask, shaking them around. He's talking about people's moms. Um, he's putting people down as far as you know. Just, <laughs> just just a lot of different uh, just a lot of different ways that he used you know the way that he coached and his coaching style to motivate us as a team. A lot of it was funny, you know, but it really made you think about yourself. It really made you want to, you know, take a look in the mirror and just and just uh, really look at yourself and see what you can do to, you know, turn that energy around and make it something positive to make you a better football player. Um, at the end result, it made you a better man at the end of the day. Um, like I said, he has a, we have a lot of different uh, Mickey stories and, you know, stuff that uh, he said, stuff that he did. One of one of my favorite things was uh, we was at practice one day and. And uh, somebody did, I can't remember who it was, but somebody did like a bonehead play, just something really, really stupid. And uh, Mickey took off running. And uh, he ended up pulling his hamstring in the process of trying to chase the guy. And he just like flopped down, like free willy, like out of the water. Like just, it was it was God. one of the funniest things that I've ever saw before. <laughs> but uh, just, just you know those types of things happen every single day it's like we could have a whole podcast for a week straight two months straight about the different things and bring on different guys of what he said to them you know personally professionally you know on the field off the field just a lot of different things that he did was just you know it was it was really really motivating at the end of the day if you actually took a took a good look at it and like really understood exactly his coaching style and the way he was with his players so one of my favorite things, and I guess what I'm passionate about is a lot of recruiting, right? I've been covering, you know, JMU recruiting over the last decade and just seeing a lot of amazing players come and go into the program from folks, you know, transferring in from different programs to being developed from high school, et cetera. I know recruiting is a lot different now than it was before, but I'd love to kind of hear both of your stories on how you heard about JMU, maybe how Mickey pursued you, maybe other programs that wanted to get you on board as well. Like, what was it like through your recruitment process? Oh man, um, for me, I took I took a visit to UVA Tech. You know, a lot of the the, the D one schools surrounding uh, the area uh, that I was from, uh, King George, Virginia. Um, um, JMU, um, I knew about because Cortez had went there. Um, Cortez is one of the best players in our area um his senior year um and i knew he had went there he's a good friend of mine and and that's that's the main reason why i took a visit there um like i said i had uh at these other universities i didn't get offered a full scholarship uh there was partials halves and even a walk-on in one um so when i came to jmu and uh and mickey immediately offered me a full scholarship um I knew right then and there, you know, looking at my grandmother and she's like smiling from ear to ear. Like I knew where I was going. That's awesome. Me, um, 
for me, um, I was actually on a, um, I was actually supposed to go to Bridgewater, which is right down the road, um, on no scholarship, paying $25,000 a year to go to school there. And they wanted me to play football there. Um, two weeks before uh, graduation, my senior year, um, one of the coaches from JMU had came and pulled me off of a school bus as we were headed to Kings Dominion for the day. And um, he pulled me off the bus, pulled me to the side, took about 10 or 15 minutes, you know, gave me his spiel about how they wanted me to come down to the university, take a, take a look around campus, um, see if I like it. Um, and uh, so I did that with my parents. Uh, we both went, we, all three of us went down there. Um, they showed me around, you know, at the end of the tour, you know, talking to my parents, stuff like that. They liked the campus. It was beautiful. You know, JMU is a beautiful setting. There's nothing, there's nothing bad about JMU. The grass around the campus is clean. It's, it's freshly cut. You know, there's no trash. So it's like, it's, it's, it's a really, really pretty university. Um, I wasn't on full scholarship. They offered me a two thirds uh, scholarship uh, to come and play ball there. So, you know, paying 25,000 a year to go to Bridgewater, paying $3,000 a year to go to JMU, that's, that's kind of a no brainer to play on a higher level of, of football. Um, so I made the, made the transition there. Um, didn't really know anybody there. Um, come to Tohavit, you know, I, I didn't redshirt my freshman year. I uh, had an opportunity to play as a freshman uh, going into the third game of the season. Um, and then from there, after the, after the first season, they, they bumped me up to a full scholarship. Uh, so it's one of those things that's kind of bittersweet, you know, definitely didn't, definitely didn't plan it that way. Um, definitely had a tremendous opportunity to be around a lot of great guys, uh, had a tremendous experience at GMU for five years, uh, got a degree. Um, so it's one of those things that's just kind of bittersweet, you know, one of those things you don't really think you'll be a part of, but at the end of the day, you know, having that opportunity was something that I'll never, I'll never take it for granted. Taylor, you're on mute. All right, I think Taylor's having some. You're there. Check. There you go. Okay. You're back. <laughs> Cortez, you did a really good job of highlighting some of the other players on your team and some of the other great plays throughout the season. Um, and it was a season of, of, of memorable plays and players. Matter of fact, that Delaware game that we're talking about, what doesn't get talked about is that goal line stand at the end. I think they were first and goal. Uh, had four plays. Was it Tony Lazat? I believe knocked it down in the end zone for the last fourth down. That kind of got it. And that the Delaware game and the App State two eight two thousand eight game. Those are the last two times students have rushed the field. Um, but what I what I focus on with you and Didi in particular is how nostalgic your particular plays were and kind of how symbolic they were and what they meant to the entire season. And so as we were reflecting on nostalgia and we were talking about getting you and Didi on. Uh, John and myself uh, were, were, were talking, and I said, you know, it wasn't just the visual and the plays that we saw, but it was the audio of what accompanied uh, those plays and those games. So we figured it wouldn't be appropriate to not bring on the voice of the Dukes from the 2004 football season, if John can go ahead and bring him up, Mr. Mike No Flag Schickman himself. Mike. Look at I that. <laughs> look at that now i had two of these homecoming after you guys graduated in 04 i'm at uh o'neill's now it was hams then and i'm sitting at a bar next to a gentleman by the name of lazat who if it wasn't for matt lazat i don't know if there would have been even close to a championship matthew could have submarine that team 
He was on all of the literature. He was on all the press guides and promotions and everything else. And Matt Lazat not only was able to step back and see it as a coach, because he's a high school coach now. His offensive coordinator is some kid named Tony. I don't know where he found him. Uh, Tony Lazat. <laughs> but I had this. I had the other hat on. And he said, what a cool – and he, he was wearing his championship ring. He says he never takes off his 04 championship ring. And he said, what a great hat. I said, you mean you don't have one of these hats? Because, again, you know, Tony was more pissed off than he was because Matt knew how good Riscotti could be. And for the rest of that season, the first guy to commiserate with Riscotti after a bad play – was Matt Lazat. The first guy to congratulate him after a good play was Matthew Lazat. It was only right when they built the Plucker Center that they put that big, what, 12-foot-long photo poster of Matt Lazat leading the Dukes out of the tunnel in Chattableepanooga, as uh, Rondell Bradley used to call it. And to give some additional context to maybe some folks that aren't as familiar with the 04 season, Matt Lazat was the three-year starter, correct, at JMU? Started for three years at James Madison University. And in that 04 season, a transfer by the name of Justin Riscotti from the University of Louisville uh, came in, won the starting job. And as Mike was talking about, Matt uh, could have done everything that Mike just said, but was the most supportive and really just another coach on the sideline. And I thought it was so uh, perfect. If you guys remember the, the, the classic AP photo that ran in a bunch of the newspapers across the country was the picture of the crowd lifting up Matt Lazat and sur crowd surfing him across the field after we won uh, in Montana and Chattanooga. So um, Mike, I, I wanted to ask you, as we were talking about the, the, the punt return at, at Delaware just now, one, do you still remember word for word that play call? And two, did you know what it would become 20 well, years later? Now, <laughs> the point is, and, and this is for Cortez, if Cortez Thompson doesn't run that back, Dukes do not go to the playoffs. That was the truth. So when Cortez made the biggest play of his career, and one of the all-time biggest plays in JMU history. I remember talking to Mickey after the game. He says, Cortez doesn't do that. We're going home. That's how important a play it was. Uh, we had gotten some so many inauspicious flags thrown at the end of big scoring plays that year. So the mere fact that I had to think about, thank goodness there were no flags, it became part of the call. I don't remember word for word. I, you know, there are people who are watching us who probably do, like yourself, Taylor, <laughs> who remember it. And uh, for me, it was just something that uh, it, it was so big after the fact. And Cor if it wasn't for Cortez Thompson, who knows if we're not still in FCS? Because that was the year we broke through. That's number one. Number two, D.D. Boxley made these two huge plays. But there were so many guys. And, and here is the hero of the 2004 season. And D.D. and Cortez, I wonder if you'll agree with me, Raymond Hines. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> because both both star running backs, Maurice Fenner had issues that year, and Alvin Banks got hurt. And Ray had problems holding on to the football before that happened. And we're all looking at each other going, Oh no, we've got Raymond Hines. Well, thank the Lord for Ray Hines, because he had a spectacular run. And he didn't get a chance to play much in the championship game because yeah. both Alvin and Maurice were back. And Alvin Banks played in the NFL for a couple of years, unfortunately for him, for my New York Jets, you know, <laughs> which was never good. And, and Maurice was a great running back. But Ray Hines saved all of our bacon. And for a Jewish guy, it's tough for me to say. <laughs> Mike, I wanted to ask you because, uh, and, and then I'm going to bring in the guys on, on their perspective on the calls. I, I think one of the more underappreciated roles in, in sports is the role of a team broadcaster in terms of, of the narration of a season um, in the many moments that happen and the, and the lasting impact that it has, not only on fans, but, but also coaches and players alike. When you reflect back on that season, just from your ride that you had as a, as a broadcaster covering that season, that there was some fanfare going into the season. There were some, you know, analysts who believed the team had at least the chance to 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 make a playoff berth, but there was no real national championship chatter no. about what it was like for you to go through that journey. And then, and Clinton Deedy, when you look back, having now the ability to listen to some of those calls that that highlighted those moments, on the, you, you didn't have that voice of Mike Schickman in your head where you're making the plays, but now you have the benefit of watching those plays and hearing Mike's call. Um, start with you, Mike. What was that ride like in that journey? And, and you could hear in your calls, as somebody who always listened to yours, the energy and the excitement level building as that season went on and some of the peaks and valleys that occurred in it, the loss to William & Mary after that game against Delaware. Um, I'll never forget that kick that, that seemed to, the win seemed to stop when that, in that William & Mary game, the first time we played them that allowed them to win, but there were peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys in your calls and, and what those moments meant to you. And, and especially now that you reflect back 20 years later. Well, 20 years later, uh, I remember a few things to, first of all, and the guys will remember this. In Chattableepanooga, in the airport the next day, we looked like it was Calcutta. All the players, the coaches, the, the managers and the such, and myself, we were just kind of laying around in a stupor because we were up late the night before. I remember uh, Gary Michael, Kurt Dudley, and I went out to uh, dinner. They had a great deli in Chattanooga. It was open late. And we end up having dinner with my good friend, Ray, and his beautiful wife, Robin. And we were just, and, and we were fine. But the players that next morning were so exhausted. And the coaching staff was so exhaust, exhausted. And the sportscasters that it really must have looked like Calcutta. Here are these fine men at the peak of their, of their health and physical. And they are all, because I don't know how many of them got to sleep the night after the championship game. The other thing, though, is when you think of that, first of all, you know, we, we talked about Mickey. There are two eras for Mickey Matthews, pre-Clayton's accident and post-Clayton accident. Mickey was a carefree, happy-go-lucky guy, and so was Kay, his wife. Clayton 
was a piece of work. I remember in Maine, after Clayton's accident, when he was working for Mickey, and after the loss to Maine, he said to me, that darn quarterback of ours is going to get my dad fired. I won't mention his name, but he did. He didn't do well in his next school either. Guys who are not winners in high school are not guys you should recruit in college. You've got to come from a winning program because winners make plays. Even they go beyond themselves. I mean, we could probably run that pass play to D.D. Boxley at William & Mary a dozen times. And if he makes the catch two to three times, it's wonderful. That's how difficult a catch it was. Cortez, and I saw Clint Kent uh, blocking. Clint Kent, you may not realize, had a wonderful CFL career. He's almost a Hall of Famer in the CFL. And again, the teamwork. Because if Clint doesn't block for Cortez, Cortez gets stopped at the 30. But Cortez followed him. And Clint kept pushing him push, <laughs> pushing him ahead. <laughs> you know, like, you better score this because I'm giving it all. Am I, am I right, Clint, Cortez? I could have jumped on his back. He could have carried me in. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, during a game, you don't think of these great calls. You don't think of bad calls. Believe me, I made as many bad calls as I did probably great calls in my 29 years as, as voice of the Dukes. I broadcast more losing JMU football games than any living person should have had to do. I begged on the air after that uh, Northeastern game, during the game, to keep Mickey Matthews, even though they only finished 6-6. Six and six. And Mickey had to, because the first time I met Coach, and it wasn't after, it wasn't the press conference, it was afterwards. First time I met Coach, I was in his office, that dank office under, <laughs> underneath the stands of the old stadium. I mean, the wall, I mean, it was a dump. It really was. But Mickey had the artist's rendition of the new stadium. And he said, Mike. <laughs> People here don't believe this. We are going to compete for a national championship. We are going to build a half a stadium that's as good as any stadium in the country. We're going to fill it with 25 to 27,000 fans, whatever it holds. And we're going to go 1A. Now, this is his first year after a debacle of a season. I mean, Mickey rescued the program. But holy moly, he was what, – what's the name of that uh, Russian prognosticator who predict uh, – not Nosferatu, uh, that's, the, that's the vampire. But he was amazing. Brooke just sent us – we ordered pizza at 1 o'clock in the morning after the championship. Nobody slept after the champ. Dee, did you sleep after the championship? Not at all. Cortez? <laughs> The next day. <laughs> you <slept> the next day. <laughs> I remember going to the airport. And for some reason, they had us in a charter. was Hooters Air. Yeah. Right? You remember that? Yeah. Rondell Bradley hated to fly, which is why he didn't go to Iowa, where he was recruited. And here we are making flights. But I will tell you my personal high point. 
We're playing Furman. Toughest game we had in the postseason, correct? Yep. I was on there. By the way, Mickey agrees. Mickey agrees. We saw him at Coastal. That was the hardest game of the season and the game he thought he believed that we would not win. He said he had his doubts, he said. Okay. I am being interviewed live in in the uh, rotunda in front of the football stadium by Furman Radio because I had worked in South Carolina. I'd worked in Spartanburg. And I had friends at Furman, and they're interviewing me. And the guy said, you know, these two teams are pretty even. What's the difference? And D.D. and Cortez will probably agree with me on this. I said, the difference is we have the best long snapper in college football. He never makes a bad snap. And he's really, if he was bigger, he would have had a long career like Ed Perry in the NFL. And so, what was the difference in that game, guys? That block punt at the beginning. Yeah, Furman. Because of, because of the snap. Oh, you got your hat, Steve. Way to go. That's in a lot better condition than mine because I used to wear mine to every football game. But, you know, I looked like I was Kreskin. But, no, each player on that team at one point of the season, like the boys have said, made a play or plays – the sum of the parts was not as good as the whole. And it was such a whole team. And they were great to be around. My goodness. Actually, most JMU teams I've been around were great to be around. Just so what was lot. it like? What was it like, I guess, preparing for Montana? Because everybody except us, um, everybody thought Montana would roll in there like Alabama and steamroll us. Well, we were talking um, before we, we got on the air. I still remember Matt Lazat taking a cheap hit from one of their defensive linemen. And he came out of the game because they had a different set in. And Matt walked over to their sideline and said, pointed at this guy and said, you have just lost the national championship. <laughs> and next play, Matt went, whoop, 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 touchdown, JMU. That's what those guys were like. You didn't issue challenges to Allison Banks. You didn't issue challenges to any of the wide. I mean, we were talking about Nick Tolley. Nick Tolley was, a, was an acrobat. He was a son of acrobats. And he made the most acrobatic catches. I don't know. I, I mean, listen, I think we have the best wide receiver we've had in a long time at the kid who I think is going to move on. Uh, you know, the uh, – what's his name? Brown. Hmm? Yeah. yeah. Not Brown. I'm not, not sure – not no, Sorette. Elijah Sorette. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that guy has been, has been <laughs> Both killer. of those guys are amazing. Yeah, yeah. it's been amazing. I mean, I, I love DD and I love Nick, but we're not talking about the same level of player. No, nah, not at all. The funny thing is, when you look back at the history of JMU, who did Chalice McMillan bring here? I remember, to, and a good friend of mine is the guy who was the first ball carrier in JMU history. He's the shoe man, Chip Parkins. Chip Parkins wasn't going to come, and then Chalice took him to D-Hall. What does he see at D-Hall, gentlemen? Need I point out what he saw at D-Hall? He saw... Huh? I think we all know. It wasn't food. No. Well, maybe. No. <laughs> but he said, I'm coming. 
And I'm sure, Dee Dee and Court, when you met the female paltritude on campus, I am sure <laughs> you were all impressed. There was some as Michael pride. as Michael said on the Pat McAfee show, it's 70 30 girls to guys. It's a powerful yeah, recruiting it's, tool. It's actually 65 35. And 65% okay. of those six of the 65% are drop dead gorgeous. 100%. You know, I mean, that's it. Didi, and the guys have really changed. Didi and Cortez, though. I do want to bring you back in for one thing, though. I, I do want to go back to my original question to you because I think it's interesting. When you look back on the time, how do you listen to Mike's calls of your plays? I, I, I am I'm always curious how, as a broadcaster, um, how players you know have that relationship, at least even if they they don't intimately get to hear it in the moment, but getting to reflect back and watch the replays of those major moments and and having a voice like Mike's um, to narrate those major milestone moments in your career. Um, go to you first, Didi. Uh, how do you reflect on those times? I don't That's think he heard. Didi can hear it. D I'll go to you, Cortez. While Didi figures it out as Mike, um, your thoughts on on that that call specifically, or, or any of the calls that Mike had of your your tenure um, when you reflect back on those moments. I mean, every time I hear the player see the play, you know. It kind of brings back goosebumps. Um, just the just the intensity of the game, um, the intensity of the play, um, what that play means, and just to hear the way he called the play from the beginning to end. You know, every time I hear it, I just get like I'm ready to get back on the field. Let me, <laughs> put, me in, put me in the game, coach. My hamstring might get pulled, but I'll hey, I'm, I'm gonna give it all I got. But um. Yeah, this voice of the uh this from hearing his voice of the play every time I hear it and and I and I watch that video of that play. Um, you know, it just it just really puts the, the, the whole play in perspective. Uh put it in context as far as how big that play was and and, and just such a great play it was. You know, not only for me, but as he said before, from a lot of the other guys that were out there blocking for me as I went down the field. Um so he did an amazing job as far as call, calling the play. What people don't realize that are listening to this that weren't there, Delaware was the North Dakota State of that time. Yeah. Um, that was a beast of a team. Um, and to do what we did to them was um, almost tantamount to what we did to them in 2016 at their own house. It was um, actually a bigger game, the Delaware game in 2004, than it was, and people aren't going to believe me, but at the time that it was, it was a bigger game than when we beat North Dakota State in their own place to go to the national championship Absolutely. in 16. That that was the launching pad for it. That, that's how big it was. Didi, what about yeah. you? Didi, you're on mute. No, no, mute. mute button's on. You have to use sign language now, Didi. <laughs> there, there you go. go. When, you All know... Right. Well, you talk about that William and Mary game. You may not know this, but I got a call that week first from Governor Warner's office mm -hmm. saying the governor would like to come up and and chat with me during the game in the first half. I said, sure. I said for a quarter or so. That's fine. We were up when Governor Warner came up. And then we were all of a sudden down after a couple of William and Mary touchdowns. So Mike Schickman, yes, I roused the sitting governor of Virginia because I was more superstitious than Mickey. Well, I'd gotten a call later that week that Senator George Allen, 
whose father, of course, was the George Allen, who was uh, the original guy who brought the Redskins to prominence back in the uh, 70s. George Allen's office called me, and I had known George because he had a daughter at JMU, and he used to bring her food from U-Crops because he didn't think we had grocery stores in Harrisonburg. So the governor comes up, and as soon as he puts the headset on and he gets a, an aide to uh, bring him a spit cup because he chewed, for heaven's sakes, as soon as he comes into the box and settles in, I said, Governor Allen, uh, George, uh, Senator Allen's with us. Uh, how are you, Senator? I said, I'm really excited about this game, Mike. And the next play, touchdown, James Madison University. And I said, Senator, you're staying. So he had his aide get him a bigger spit cup. I gave him a headset. He was sta You remember how, how bad and old that old football press box was at William & Mary? It was like a tiny little, little roach motel. And he stood outside of the window with his spit cup, tried to do play-by-play. -play. Well, I'm, you know, I don't share play-by-play. -play. No, you don't. <laughs> I let him do color. And he got a text from his brother, who was then on the Redskins staff. He eventually became general manager, I guess. And it's it said late in the fourth quarter, it said, I thought the Indians were a lot better than this. Go Dukes. And that was from Senator Allen's brother with the Redskins. And it just made uh, Dudley and I laugh, you know, because here's a guy who is senator, U.S. senator, former governor. Uh, I always tease him, though, his wife would have made a better governor than him. I think we'd probably say for all of us, our better halves would probably do better at what we do than they do. Into that. You know, because it, they only did one stupid thing in their lives. <laughs> as mrs lips well, atkins knows yes very very well at, at, when when mickey matthews first met her he looked at me and he looked at her and he said boy you really outkicked your coverage on that one yeah um <laughs> no question well we um i i know we're, we're running a little over time that we told y'all we would be here but i i do want to just real quick around the horn give some final thoughts for you three um a lot of the people that are listening to our show um, our folks that have really jumped on the bandwagon after the 2004 season, and very likely for a lot of the students and newcomers, those that have just jumped on the bandwagon the last few years. Um, just real quick, uh, I'll start with Cortez, go to Didi, and then uh, Mike, I'll give you the last word, but just tell some of these new faces and this new crowd just how special this is, and um, you know, just your, par your parting gifts as, as the team that really started this all. Cortez? I mean, for me, it's just kind of, it's just kind of the gratitude to show like the hard work. You know, it does pays off. Whether you can see it firsthand and experience it yourself, or you can pass that on to future generations. You know, as someone commented earlier today, it looked like we played on a tennis court. You know, we had indoor outdoor carpet that we used to play our games on. Anytime you fell, you would cut oh, yourself yeah. to the white meat. Um, so now looking at the field and the stadium, you know, and the facilities and the attention and the attractions and you know the way things have changed over the last you know 20 years that we've been able to to uproot and we were able to start you know it's just tremendous to see that we were the we were the foundation you know the foundation never gets the credit 
it's always the end result that that always looks pretty that everybody looks at to kind of see like, oh, okay, they've been winning the last couple of years, you know, but they always forget where it originated. Um, so be, for me, just to be a part of the origination, you know, speaks a lot, you know, for me and, you know, what I've done and what we were able to do together as a football team in, you know, 2004 to win a national championship. Um, it's just tremendous to see the growth and the opportunities that the, that the university has with, you know, having more kids and now moving from FBS or from FCS to FBS. Um, and just the, just that transition over the last couple of years um, that Jamie has been able to do is just, it's just kind of rewarding to know that, you know, all that, all that happened because of my efforts back in 2001 to 2004. Yep. Didi. Oh man. Um, just like Cortez said, it's, you know, we were the foundation. Uh, we were the beginning of it all. Um, and to see where the program has come to now from then, it's, it's just amazing. The experience <laughs> is second to none in my book. And I'm pretty sure. And a lot of you guys as well. Um, you gotta, you gotta come to, to experience it. Amen. Mike, the final well, words. Well, uh, first of all, Cortez, Edie, I loved you guys, and I still do. Thank you. I loved that team. Uh, they gave me my first ring. They <laughs> gave me a ring. He also gave my good friend the Blast Man in Hampton Roads because we had our games on ESPN radio there. And Mickey gave Tony Mercurio a JMU championship ring. The irony is Tony was the voice of Old Dominion women's basketball. They had been to the final four. They had won more CAA titles than anybody else. And Old Dominion never gave him a ring. So anytime he broadcast at Old Dominion, he always made sure to have his JMU championship ring on. And he would hold his hand out. And the players say, Tony, where'd you get that? He said, from people who appreciate me. And I've always felt appreciated at JMU until the end. And that's what happened. Listen, there'll never be another Ron Carrier. There'll never be another Linwood Rose. Jeff Bourne retiring, God bless him. He did a wonderful job. And it wasn't easy. These people are special. Dr. Ray Sonner, who the great picture of him and Ron Carrier on lounge chairs next to Harrisonburg High School's football field where JMU first played. You know, I remember walking the field during press day or whatever, and I'd go home and my feet and legs were killing me toward Cortez. I know exactly what you guys were going through. That was the single most unforgiving field in college football. It was cement. Cement with a green, with, with like a, a chia pet on top of it. But you guys persevered. You guys came together, and it was such a beautiful thing to see. And I don't know how close this team is. They look pretty close to me. But you guys were special. Even afterwards, when everybody was gunning for you. You know, you guys are the foundation. And you're not alone. You know, uh, we could talk about Lizots, Rascottis, uh, we can talk about. I, I saw your, your favorite center, Mr. Steinfeld, <laughs> at uh, the Mickey uh, golf tournament 
to raise money for a scholarship fund for his son in his son's name for former players' kids, which you guys should be aware of, and for local kids. And Leon, who had the – he played for six years at JMU, never played a down or a minute of practice in spring practice. That takes talent. And I won't tell you about these guys in Chattanooga, what they did on their free night to go around Chattanooga. I remember hearing the stories afterwards. <laughs> yeah. On that note, on that note, we guys have families now. <laughs> guys, um, just in, in closing, I want to say first of all to to both Cortez and Didi as a, as a student who watched that run, um, who started off in 2001 begging his roommates in Eagle to make what the the hundred or two hundred foot journey over the bridge <laughs> to watch games, yes. and, and failed more times than I succeeded. Um, I have to say thank you because what you did for for fans like me who were you know fans before it was cool to be a fan, um, it's impossible to to overstate the the value and the joy that that 2004 run uh, made, and that that's also with somebody who worked closely with the program, working for Kurt and, and Mike at the time. Um, so thank you because we, we try to say that as part of Sound Off, one thing we've tried to do is give a voice to former players. Um, and every time that we get a chance to say thank you for the sacrifices you made, um, both in terms of the time you put into the program, but also the physical wear and tear, um, just know that there are a lot of people that that still value what you did. Um, still read books like Midnight Chattanooga that, that chronicle that season, uh, written by James Irwin. And to Mike, um, you're the call that narrated so many of those moments that we all get to relive uh, through the many different platforms that you can still see some of those games. Um, just know it mattered to a lot of us, and, and you were very kind to a lot of young broadcasters who came through the sports media department at JMU, and, and that kindness is, has never been forgotten by a lot of us. Um, so thank you for your contributions, and uh, you're, you're somebody you that will be always cherished by the fan base. No, because it's true, and, and we – to tease something in the spring, we're going to be doing a lot more of these lookbacks uh, on the 04 season. Now that we hit the 20 year anniversary, we're bringing on more of your teammates. Um, so this is not the last time we'll hear from all of you, but just know um, as we go into this off season, uh, we cannot wait to tell more of your stories because um, they are the foundations for this program and the foundation of what's to come. So gentlemen, um, Cortez, be safe on your drive. Didi, we'll also talk to you soon. And Mike, keep the stories coming. Uh, we value them more than you know. So guys, uh, we'll talk to you guys soon and uh, enjoy the holiday season and, and bowl season as well for JMU. Thank, Thank you for gentlemen. having me. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. All right, guys. And with that, we will bring our final thoughts for the episode. Guys, a lot to discuss um, tonight's episode. This was special for me. I know this is special for Taylor, probably and Steve too. And, and, and Michael is somebody who really appreciates um, the history and the foundation of this program. I'm going to go from the top. Oh, well, now we'll come back to Steve. We'll go for, for you, Michael. Your final thoughts. A lot happening on Twitter right now. There's there's people tracking flights. Um, seems like there's might be some, some news quicker than... Uh, we, we might have thought when we started the broadcast that maybe we might get a name tomorrow. Um, your final thoughts as we go into uh, what's going to be a big week for this program. In the words of Samuel L. Jackson in the amazing movie Jurassic Park, hold on to your butts because I feel like feels like things are going to be moving quickly. So we'll see. But yeah, special episode. I remember when I came in in 08, everyone was just talking about the 2004 championship like it was just yesterday. The rise of the football program. I think they just announced the how much was it, sixty million dollar expansion of Bridgeport Stadium. Um, just awesome, awesome. Just hearing those guys like banter back and forth and tell some amazing stories. So 
excited um, for a lot of different reasons. And yes, seems like the plane tracker, flight tracker is in full effect right now, to say the least. Awesome. Michael, feel better. You're under the weather tonight. Thanks for, for pushing through. Uh, Taylor, thank you for putting this together. Um, I, I know when we both kicked around the idea of, of doing this podcast back in the day, um, we all wanted to to tell stories and and to give an opportunity to say thank you to some of these these legends in this program that that gave us some of the memories and and things we've all come to really appreciate, especially as we start to get a little older uh, as fans. Um, your thoughts on tonight's episode and anything else related to the program as we go into what's going to be another, as I said to Michael, a pivotal week for this program uh, yep. as we go through the the next couple of weeks, head toward the bowl and the off season. I have a lot to say. Midnight in Chattanooga is the book by uh, James Irwin, a good friend of John. John, you were the editor for this book. I am. I? Yeah, and Correct. I took the, I took the cover photo in my neighborhood. So I don't think I ever knew that. A little piece of uh, trivia. Charles Midnight Glenn Chattanooga. Park. We, it, we it, bought it, some streamers at Party City for that photo shoot. But. <laughs> you can you can DM John. I know that you talked yeah. about we can get. But there are also we'll on Amazon. copies on Amazon. on Amazon. You can go on Amazon, type in Midnight and Chattanooga, because I know there's a lot of people that listen to this broadcast. And if there's anything I could go back in this episode and do, I think the three of us are so we have so much context of some of those stories. Um, you know, there's probably a little more context that we could have provided. We, we uh, didn't talk about their- the turf. We didn't talk about the turf in Montana. <laughs> oh, so to, to that point, and, and you, you did kind of tease this earlier. Um, we're going to do a lot more diving into the 2004 season uh, next year. And there, there'll probably be some one-off episodes of just that type of thing. Keep the regular sound off episodes for all the current stuff. But I think we do want to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive similar to the midnight in Chattanooga. And what I love about that book is not only does it tell the story of that game in Montana, but it, it tells the story in such a way that it tells you from the beginning of the game to the end of the game, while also going into the backstories of a lot of the people that made that possible. So Midnight in Chattanooga, if you're not familiar with the book, go on Amazon and check it out. If you are familiar with the book and never got a copy, go on Amazon and check it out. Um, number two, uh, I, I know I, I kind of bring up things from the past. I should just let it go, and I'll let it go after this. There are a lot of folks from uh, Sunbelt teams on Twitter the last 24 hours that kind of seem well, not last twenty four hours since the NY six bowls were announced Preach. with the other team, and a lot of people saying, "Man, that could have been Troy. That could have been JMU. I can't believe that so and so team is 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 playing Oregon. I can't, you know." Listen, I, I'm going to say this because, first of all, Keith Gill, great commissioner. I'd argue one of the best commissioners in the country. This was not his doing. That man is the he executes the decisions of the conference. The conference and the group of teams, they had a chance to come together and allow JMU to play in that Sunbelt game, regardless of what the NCAA did. And if you want to say, well, you know, there, there's there's precedent in this. I'll tell you what the precedent is. In 2013, I was at UTSA. UTSA was in the running for the first. We actually finished tied first in the West that year. Um, they were ineligible for a bowl because it was their second year of transition. UTSA was still eligible to go to the conference championship for Conference USA in 2013 because that were the conference bylaws. Um, last year, if you were following March Madness, Merrimack College transitioning from D2 to D1 they're in the Northeast Conference. They had a chance to play in their basketball championship game, did not get to participate in the NCAA tournament because of those silly NCAA laws. But at the end of the day, um, you know, JMU and Troy would have both had a great argument to be the G5 representative after seeing the results between the Tulane and SMU game. I'll leave it at that. Actually, I will just add one more thing. As we see our former conference mates move up from uh, 
FCS to Conference USA in Delaware, I will be, and everyone can hold me to this, I will be championing them to have the opportunity, if they earn it, to play in whatever championship and whatever postseason play they can. And mm. you all correct me if I'm wrong, because of the fuss and not letting it go that we did during our time in the CAA, Delaware is not being held to the same postseason rules as the CAA. So I'm proud of the JMU fan base to standing up against the CAA when they did, because we've made a difference for everyone that's going to come behind us. And I hope moving forward that Delaware or any other team that gets to move up, I hope that uh, what JMU has accomplished this year and has brought to national attention uh, pays off for for future student athletes, even if it's not to JMU's benefit. And then I can't end the episode today without mentioning JMU men's basketball. I know, you know, we're not in conference play yet. Football's still coming on here, but my goodness, I know it was a D3 team that they played uh, today at the Atlantic Union Bank Center, but 130 points. They beat the team by 71, 130 to 59. And I'm sure if Coach Byington's listening to me, I don't even think we played that good of a game. I think we kind of played against a team that we knew we were better than, and so there was some sloppy play, some sloppy passes. Um, but this team is good, and I can't wait. I'll give you guys a quick heads up of their schedule. They're uh, they're off this week until they go to play at Old Dominion on December 9th. Then they're at Hampton December 16th, and their next home game is, I believe, a Tuesday night, December 19th against Coppin State. And so there's only two more home games this month, Coppin State on the 19th and Texas State on the 30th. Um, get out to these games. This team is 22 in the nation. We uh, have the AP poll coming out tomorrow. They'll likely be in the AP poll for the fourth week in a row. Uh, thank you, Brooke Boyd, for coming on here. I did not look that up in the notes earlier, but the women did defeat Wake Forest. Always a good day to beat an ACC foe. But again, this women's team, to remind everybody, is picked to finish top of the Sun Belt. So this is a good women's team. This is a great men's team. This is a great arena to go out and enjoy some basketball in. And again, I know there's a lot of alumni out there that have not had the chance to experience a game in the Atlantic Union Bank Center. Get out, support this team, start paying attention to basketball. But uh, go Dukes and excited for the football team to compete in Fort Worth against the Air Force. Awesome. Taylor, did we have unfairness against Coppin State? Didn't they beat us last year? So Coppin State, if you all remember, not only was it an overtime loss to statistically, and this is not a shot at Coppin State, statistically Coppin State finishes one of the worst teams in the country last year, but Coppin State was that weird afternoon day game where they let elementary school kids come this is at coppin state and this is the game that was delayed 20 30 minutes because they weren't able to find referees and while i still to this day have not gotten the full story of what happened if you ask anyone associated with the men's basketball team um that was there when that was happening you get a lot of laughs and smirks and go uh yeah i'll tell you that story one day so there is some crazy story to the backstory of all of that but i don't know if we even had legitimate referees or whatever but anyway yes Coppin State got us uh while we were down last year and um looking forward to inviting them back to Harrisonburg this year awesome thank you Taylor Steve your final thoughts tonight was fun um especially for for old people and the the thing I couldn't show you let's see if I can show you now I've got a signed helmet from the 2004 national championship game signed by Justin Riscotti. So that is a game-worn helmet that I got in an auction in 2005 for, I think, $35. Um, I got the helmet, and I got the game football 
that was one of the footballs used, I think for a total of $85 donation, it was the largest donation at the auction um, in 2005. So this stuff's probably worth something. It means something to me. It's hanging on my wall right by my Virginia Tech uh, picture with the, with the line of scrimmage. So having all those guys on, Schickman um, called high school games back in the day when I was growing up in the Valley. Um, I used to listen to him in the stadium. That's back, uh, folks, when there were uh, radios that you could listen to um, that po- folks probably don't do now. Now you can listen on your phone, but I think it's delayed a little bit. I, I don't know how it all works. I don't do it. Um, but having DD and, and you know having Cortez, having those guys on is just um, unbelievable. And it's more we need to do more of that um, to really ground people on where the program is and where the program came from. And so it was it was fun tonight to do that. I think we needed that after the um, the last couple days of um, of just you know, a lot of a lot of uh, hand wringing, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of emotions tonight kind of turned this around for me. I'll be very honest. At about seven o'clock, um, I looked at Alice and said, "I don't really want to go on. I, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I'm really kind of aggravated, and I'm afraid it's going to come off as I'm really pissed off." Um, and honestly, this actually turned my mood around and made this really happy. So I've got my 2004 hat on that Schickman had his on. It looks like he's never washed his. Um, I've got three of these. Let's be honest. I know he, he has had, not washed I've got, it. I've got I've got three of these. I got two of them in pristine condition that are still sitting back there, um, you know, in my room where my hats are um, that I've never put on. So, and I'll always keep one like this. I haven't worn this hat probably in ten years. So. It was a it was a blast. Um, I don't know what's going on on Twitter. I haven't had a chance to look. Um, so you guys are telling me there's flight tracker stuff. I have might no be a, idea there might be a plane leaving from Shenandoah Airport tomorrow to Worcester. Worcester is it Worcester, Massachusetts? Worcester, Worcester, the home of of a really good minor league hockey team and also Holy Cross University. So, from the Patriot League. All right, I didn't know. I, I haven't been paying attention to any of that. But okay, cool. So that that's I mean I'm loving life, um, feeling good. So, you guys got me got me back to where I need to be. Awesome, Steve. I just want to say again to the guys that 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 014. My final thought is just it, it's hard for for fans who started in 2001 or around that era, um, who came in who were very passionate about college football and college sports. Um, I was being from the Northeast, was new to college football, fell in love with the program for my freshman year on. Uh, but to see that team grow as a unit in that 04 season and, and catch the attention and catch the energy of a campus that clearly was waiting to be unleashed uh, was special. And it's something that will remain. If I, when I look back uh, on my life as a fan of JMU, there's, I, I still think nothing that can top the 04 run um, just because of how unexpected it was, how meaningful it was, and how personal it was. Uh, and that's something I always appreciated uh, about that team is how close they let the fans go. Uh, that was in an era of, of fandom where... You know, you see the the tri- championship trophy presentations now, where it's there's confetti and there's there's you know a stage. You know, Jamie wins that game. They walk the trophy onto the field. We all rushed the field, jumped off those big stands, and and then the, they cut away as quickly as they possibly could. But the fans got to celebrate with those players because it was special to them. It was and there was felt like a deep connection. I know Taylor, you were there, and it was special well, for you. I, I, I wanted to say I, I I can't believe I didn't find a way to bring this up tonight. Um, do you all remember the DVD 
that was burned yeah. for the champion. It, it was kind of not not the games themselves, but the yep. Duke Club put out like a 14, 15 minute. I, I didn't even have a DVD player hooked up to a television because everything's streaming these days, but dug through some boxes, found a DVD player, found that DVD, watched it in preparation for tonight's episode. Um, for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, I think it might be a good thing for us to do in the next week, maybe reach out to the Duke Club and see if that's something that could maybe be put on YouTube or kind of find what the, the status of that video is. Because uh, as I was watching, I said, man, this is such a historic piece of JMU football history. And it is kind of short and condensed. It would be a great thing for a lot of these new fans that have maybe come on in the last yeah. decade or even the last few years to see. So uh, stay tuned to that, everyone. We will follow up um, if we get any word, if that's something that is still on a hard drive somewhere at JMU. And if it's something that is allowed to be uploaded. I, I don't know. I just had a thought, but I think people would enjoy seeing that. And uh, also, December 4th, John, is that a date that is uh, something special for our merchandise? Yes. And so if it good call, thank you for reminding me that. If you're somebody who wants any of our Sound Off merchandise delivered for Christmas, please order by December 4th. You can order after December 4th. It's just not guaranteed to arrive by Christmas. So that's Bonfire's kind of... Uh, set and stand guaranteed that if you order by that date, they guarantee by Christmas, they're going to try, they say to get it if you order after. So uh, we're coming up with that deadline and we're seeing a lot of orders come in. So uh, thank you to people who continue to support us at jmusoundoff.com. Uh, everything we we get from those shirts that we sell goes right back into this product and helping us continue to bring great stories like the ones we did tonight. So gentlemen, um, thanks for another great episode to the fans. As Michael Taylor and Steve have said, take a deep breath. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, as, as we get a hire, you're going to see good things start to happen again for this program because that's what we do. It's the culture. We win at JMU. We're going to continue to win. Um, so we all look forward to what comes next. And we will have coverage on JMU Sound Off as we go throughout the week. When there is an announcement, there'll be a special episode. So don't worry. We'll have all the conversation around the hire and bring you the news. But as always, go Dukes. Enjoy the week. And we'll talk to you some point this week. And if not, we'll see you next Sunday at 8 p.m. for JMU Sound Off. With that, Taylor Atkins, Steve Brown, Michael Evangelista. Good night.